I'm James Norton. And I'm Tina Graziano. And this is Homeland Homeroom. We're going to continue our conversation today about the upcoming midterm elections. Last week, we spoke to Brian Walsh, a Republican strategist who worked for the Senate Republican whip, John Cornyn, and is now a partner at Rock Solutions. And this week, we're really fortunate to have top Democratic strategist Alex Goldstein with us, who most recently was a senior advisor to Ayanna Presley, who really shook the political world up there in Boston as a city councilor and is now the Democratic nominee for Massachusetts 7th Congressional District. Presley defeated 10-term incumbent Michael Capuano in a stunning primary upset last month. And with no Republican opponent, she is set to become the first black woman to represent Massachusetts in Congress. And she's a former Kennedy staffer. Very important. Very Very important. important. Critical. Absolutely. Alex also was a former spokesperson for Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick and potentially presidential candidate. And he's also the (laughs) current founder and CEO at 90 West. Alex, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Alex, tell us about your experience advising the Presley campaign over the past six months. The polling was showing her 13 points behind as recently as August, and she pulled off a stunning upset, 17 points ahead of Michael Capuano. How did it happen? Well, so the first thing I'll say is that the reason I got involved in this campaign to begin with, and it's consistent with my work with Governor Patrick, too, is I'm particularly drawn to candidates who are told by the establishment not to run for things uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think primaries in general are really good. They're good for our democracy. They're good to hold our elected officials accountable. And Councilor Presley is just a fantastic candidate. She's inspiring. She's talented. She's smart. She's driven. She's really done a great job with the city council. And so that's kind of what pulled me into the race to begin with. Those are the dynamics that I think were were exciting about it. Uh, You know, in terms of how did it happen, this is something that everyone across the country can pay attention to, is it's worth throwing all of the polling out the window. I think 2018 is a year where all the traditional models and conventional wisdom around how we uh, horse race and handicap elections is failing. And that's because the motivations and the energy behind what's driving different communities out to vote has changed. We knew that we had an opportunity to bring in a whole lot of voters who had felt either left out of the process or unseen by the process, or just hadn't really had a chance to engage with their democracy too much in the past, and that this was the moment that we could bring them back into that. And I think that's one of the ways that we were able to kind of break the traditional math. It showed that every community and every voter is worth organizing for and on behalf of. And I think that was a big part of it. I also I also think that there's a lesson here for the Democrats, which is that Councillor Presley ran a campaign that was aspirational in as much as it was a critique of the current administration. And what she was really saying out there is that we need to both resist Donald Trump, but we also need to progress. And there has to be something else there as opposed to just this kind of uh, perfect critique of the president. And I think that that was really central to her campaign was to offer an alternative vision. And that was uh, uh, resonated with, with voters in the 7th. Yeah, I mean, you, you raise a lot of good points there. Um, what were some of the ways that you were able to kind of gauge kind of how you were doing in the race? What's sort of ironic about being alive in this era of political activity is that the campaigns that I think are most successful are going back to the real, real old school, which is grassroots to the core, campaigning door to door, having real conversations with voters, not relying on even phone banking or just social media as a means of connecting, but to actually go right to people. And one of the ways that grassroots campaigns know that they're successful is they're building capacity constantly. They're getting feedback from the doors 
that goes directly into their database. So they know how many people they're identifying as supporters and how many people are leaning away from them or supporting their opponent. And so we have this sort of saying, I'm a grassroots field organizer originally. That was what I did on the first Patrick campaign in 2006. One of the things I learned during that time is when you get to get out the vote weekend, you can be in grassroots heaven or grassroots hell. A campaign that is in grassroots heaven is a campaign that has done all of the real infrastructure work, has worked really, really hard to engage thousands and thousands of voters leading up to election day. So you know that you already know who they are. You just have to go out and get them to show up. And that's where we were on election day is we all felt pretty good because we knew that at the end of the day, all we really had to do was go out and make sure our folks showed up. One other interesting thing that um, has been covered a little bit about this race is we did not do any real traditional television advertising. Our opponent did over a million dollars of it. We did only ads on Univision and uh, Telemundo and didn't do any other cable TV advertising and instead focused all of our money on field and on uh, digital outreach. And that was uh, a gamble that we took. Uh, we didn't know how it would pay off, but uh, we're certainly glad it did. <laughs> I mean, how do you feel about November? I mean, what are your predictions for November, both in mass and nationwide? Yeah, you know, I, look, I've learned one thing, which is that every single one of these campaigns is created differently, and the dynamics on the ground are different. I do think that one thing that is unquestionable is that there is a energy and momentum on the Democratic side. It's not just a cool thing to say there's a wave coming. I mean, you can actually feel it out there. In 2016, on Election Day in November, I was in Rye, New Hampshire, and Nashua, New Hampshire, helping the Clinton campaign um, just as a volunteer. And I was at the polls, and I was noticing all these voters showing up at the polls. They looked like they had never voted for it. They, never, they couldn't find the opening to the polling location. They didn't know like how the process worked or anything. And I said, wow, Donald Trump's going to win this election tonight. Because the amount of people I saw who clearly were voting for the first time, and it was obvious that they were favoring him, I felt that again on uh, this past election in which I saw young people, I saw people of color. I saw a very diverse part of our electorate showing up, and many of them had clearly not voted in, in quite some time. And I think that that is going to carry over across the country. So I, I think that it's going to be a very strong showing. I think the question is not whether the Democrats are going to take the House. I think they will. I think the question is whether there's enough there to actually move the needle in the Senate as well. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> I almost feel like we'll I'm at like James a... James is over here rolling his I'm, eyes. I feel like I'm at a Democratic campaign rally right now you or something. Be. Like, you know what I mean? Like just you, the pom-poms are over there. Dina's got to put her pom-poms yeah, down. We She's are pretty excited right now. party. We, we yep. take defectors all the time. One James, thing that... I am so ready for you to join us. It is just <laughs> come, really, to the, I mean, come to Alex, the join the Jedi. Alex, he's a Massachusetts Republican. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. So He's like a unicorn. One thing that... I'll take that as a compliment, Dina. One thing that that I really wanted to get your, your take on. It seems like the Democratic Party is is going through a little bit in the reverse what the Republicans went through with the Tea Party in the 2010 time frame in terms of, you know, the party at that time, a lot of people saw it moving to the right. I think there's discussion about the Democrats kind of moving all the way to the left with the, the victory um, in New York City. Obviously, you know, your victory a, a couple of weeks ago. You know, a lot of the issues that Councilwoman Presley ran on were things like immigration, you know, abolish ICE. You know, how do you kind of square that in terms of, you know, actually getting ready to kind of go on day one if Democrats do get the House? You know, how do you see Democrats kind of rolling out an agenda and, and kind of if there is a kind of a far left wave for Democrats? I don't necessarily see it in terms of their like far left or whatever. What I see it is the Democrats are doing something that I think the Republicans have beat us at for a while, which is we're being really clear in our convictions about what we actually stand for. 
And we're using language that makes that not wishy-washy or nervous or you know uh, reluctant, but that says, here's my values, here's my convictions, this is what I am not willing to compromise on, and voters are responding to it. I mean, it was almost like controversial to talk and think big. We needed to be the party that's solely focused on pragmatism with nothing aspirational. And I think that that has hurt us. And that there's a way to combine both the pragmatism of getting things done with some aspirational language about how we actually stand for something. And that's, I think you see that in the talk, conversation about uh, Medicare for all. I think you see that. Um, I mean, look, abolish ICE can take a number of different forms. Councilor Presley specifically referred to as defunding ICE. At the end of the day, what these candidates are talking about is that there are certain things in this country that we will not tolerate. And we will not tolerate sort of the desecration of another person's humanity by ripping them away from their family, regardless of the terms of how they came into this country. And I think that that's good. I'm glad to see Democrats having some freaking backbone finally and saying, this is what I actually believe. Now, look, you can say that it's not pragmatic and what's it look. And, and by the way, I don't think that any, certainly in the case of Councilor Presley, she was never talking about open borders. She was talking about a humane enforcement. Uh, ICE is an organization that has somehow become rotten to its core in terms of the way it was carrying out its orders, and I think that that's, uh, you know, that's a, I'm glad to see the Democrats stand for something there. I also think the same thing for Medicare for All, by the way. Um, this is something that Democrats have tiptoed around for a while, but what we're really saying here is that everybody deserves access to affordable health care. That should not be a controversial, radical thing, especially not when we have a president who's trying to get us to spend billions of dollars on a space force. Like, what are we even talking about here? <laughs> like, I, I, I just... I, Didn't you I see get, James Bond? Yeah, this happened in James Bond. This was like Cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, my point is, look, I don't think Democrats are doing it as an electoral strategy alone, although certainly there are campaigns that are doing it for that reason. But I think they're doing it because they're looking around and they're seeing what's going on in this country. And they said, look, if we don't stand for something now, when will we ever stand for something? Um, what else do you think is, is resonating with voters? You know, cyber has been an issue that's mm-hmm. You know, whether it's the 2016 election, whether it's hacking the federal government and the Defense Department, individuals losing their data, corporations losing CEOs because they're being hacked by, you know, outside act bad actors. You know, do you see that as an, as an issue that's resonating with voters at all? Do people want to fix? Um, yeah, you know, I think it's definitely – is it the number one issue motivating voters to go to the polls? Maybe not. But it is definitely something that's in the back of everybody's mind because it is something that every single voter is interfacing in some way, shape, or form um, in their daily lives. This stuff is very, I think, front and center for folks. And of course, also Russian meddling is something that I think still has a lot of Democrats traumatized um, as they think about, like, sort of relive 2016 a little bit. I don't think there was a voter that asked us about cybersecurity as an issue. The number one issue that I think we talked about out there was growing inequality, right? I mean, that was just without question the number one issue. And we use this sort of metaphor of the one bus here in Boston, where you have a bus that goes from Harvard Square in Cambridge to Dudley Square in Roxbury, uh, straddling the district of the 7th Congressional. And you look out the window on that bus from Harvard to Roxbury, and you're literally seeing across every single outcome, the statistics plummet, whether it's life expectancy, you know, median household income. And there's a real question, I think, in this country right now about how much more stratification between the haves and the have-nots are people able to tolerate? And what is the impact of that in our communities when so many people seem to still be struggling, even as like the wealthiest nation 
Honestly, that was the issue we heard every single day. Maybe part of the issue is that people don't necessarily have an expectation that their government is capable of helping them <laughs> with their cyber issues, that that's something that's that they're supposed to do by calling their credit agency or uh, you know, and, you know, downloading some good software or something. And I'm not sure it's something that the government has necessarily demonstrated that they've got a good handle on. <laughs> and so maybe folks have come to just feel like they're on their own on that one. I don't know. What do we think the Kavanaugh effect might be? I mean, obviously, you know, I on Friday, everybody, there wasn't a person, you know, not watching those hearings last week and on Thursday. I actually weren't really want to know what the ratings Ford. are. I'll be fascinated to see what they are. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I got in a cab and it was, you know, everyone was listening to it. Every person I know was paying attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think if he is confirmed the woman vote, especially the Caucasian woman votes, really does swing Democratic. I think, you know, I'm obviously hopeful. I'm not a big fan of Judge Kavanaugh, not only on his, you know, ideology, but I I obviously don't think he presented a very good front. And I felt Miss Ford was very um, compelling and truthful, though James may feel differently deciding for another episode. But I wonder what it means for the vote and for that group of voters in November, I mean, we're we're still you know several several weeks away. Do you think um, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, I, look, I I'm in the shadow of uh, not far from Boston City Hall, where there's a massive protest going on um, right now because Senator Flake is in town, and and folks want to let him know that he needs to continue the thread he may have started um, with insisting on the FBI investigation. I mean, look, this is not a court of law we're talking about, but we are talking about a job reference for a guy who is going to get a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. If our institutions can't find a way to disqualify a guy who is credibly accused of sexual assault, Several times. That will shake the core of our democracy, and it ought to. What is the message we are sending if our answer to survivors across this country is we're going to let a guy on the Supreme Court who has multiple accusers, who has had uh, all of that pushed aside, the actual ideological positions he's taken that suggest that some of the settled law may not actually be settled that is really important to Democrats. But honestly, like, what makes me so sad about this is, like, I can't even – I don't even like to talk about this in, like, the partisan, like, you know, is this going to make the Democrats show up? Like, what is it going to say about our country to the world and to young women and young boys in this country about how we are allowed to treat each other and what we can aspire to? I was traumatized watching <laughs> the hearings. I have and to I was say, traumati- I went from <laughs> upset to very angry on Friday. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was and, you know, my, my mother um, is uh, one of my political heroes or sheroes in my life, and she was a, uh, she actually opened up the first reproductive health clinic in Massachusetts way back in the 70s, and all of her volunteer time was on the Planned Parenthood rape crisis hotline. I felt this horrible feeling watching my mom have to watch this happen on TV, that we are even in a place where we're willing to have a conversation, that there is nobody more qualified that we could find, that the Republicans could find and put forward, that maybe doesn't have this uh, (laughs) issue hanging over him. It's just a sad state of affairs, and I think that it shouldn't be a partisan thing. It should be something that everybody wants to get past in a way that allows us to maintain some sense of dignity and uh, integrity to the highest court in the land. 
James is. He you know, James well, yeah, and I mean, <laughs> no, no, of course. There, I mean, everybody's hang in there, buddy. <laughs> no, no, everybody's got their opinions on this, and I think that's great, and that's and that's why we have a great country. Everybody can yeah. weigh in on this. I think that um, respect. Yeah, and I do have a pen in my hand, so careful. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, you know, look, I, I think that what what we need to worry about, separate from the hearing on Friday, is, you know, politics really has become so. Just, I feel like we're in an alley now. Just everybody's just duking it out in an alley, and there's just no holds barred, and people are bringing crowbars, and they're you know running people over, and they're doing all these all these kind of things, and there's just no limits. Yeah. Well, not to, you know, I mean, Alex, I guess I would ask you, what would be your message to voters before the midterms, knowing what you know and, you know, ex- your, with your experience and kind of what do you want to tell people? So I'll give you two answers. One of them is a partisan one, and one of them is just a, a human <laughs> message. <laughs> I think the partisan one is, as a, as a proud Democrat, I've been a Democrat my whole life, um, I hope that voters see the Democrats in the midterms as a party that's willing to step into the breach and stop the chaos of the last two years and that, well, the Democrats winning the House alone is not enough necessarily. It is enough to put in some checks on the overreaches and the erosion of things that people really care about. But more than that, I think the Democrats are now talking in the terms of what we've always been, which is we are the party that believes that everybody deserves access to a good education. Everybody deserves access to health care. Everybody deserves access to opportunity and that the government has a role to play in that process. And um, I'm glad to see the Democrats flexing some muscle there, and I hope the voters see it. On a more nonpartisan level, my takeaway from these last couple years of politics as an observer of politics my whole life, I have felt this gradual draining. And I think it may have even started in the Obama era, maybe in like 2010 is when I remember starting to observe it the most, that empathy has drained out of our discourse. The ability to see other people, to see survivors and believe them and not dismiss them, to see victims of gun violence, to see immigrants as people, the basic humanity of being a part of a shared society, I don't know, it's just drained out of our politics. And I think that what has happened is people then just go to their corners and sharpen their blades. Governor Patrick did an interview over the weekend. He said something very compelling, which is he thinks the country needs to look at some kind of national service, national volunteer service, sort of like a required AmeriCorps for a year in your life, where you are forced to see the rest of America face to face, and you can't hide from it. To not necessarily agree, but to at least understand why people feel the way they do, I think that that would be good for all of us. And I don't think this president has an interest in going in that direction. I mean, he's been playing the opposite game, which is if you pit everybody against each other, it becomes easier to get into office. Um, But I think that we are now, hopefully the response as the pendulum swings back will be the opposite, which is a politics and a discourse based and rooted in empathy. So we'll see. Well, thanks, Alex, for joining us. This was uh, very informative and and really, really enjoyable. And, you know, I like you behind the scenes. I think it's important. Um, You've got a fire in your belly that's, you know, helping great people get elected. So stay where you are for now. Let's get some more Democrats elected. Um, For our listeners, um, Alex Goldstein, former senior advisor to Ayanna Presley, former spokesperson for Governor Duval Patrick, and currently the founder and CEO of 90 West. Thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
Welcome back to Homeland Homeroom. We're continuing our discussion about the midterm elections. I'm James Norton. And I'm Dina Graziano. So let's hear from some of our listeners about their questions. None of the races in my state will help swing Congress in one direction or the other. What can I do to help get out the vote in other states that will have more of an impact? Well, you can actually go to those states and volunteer for some of those campaigns if you want. Um, I've heard recently about um, some folks who are from the D.C. area heading out you know, to work on various um, elections around the country. Congressman Hurd has invited a bunch of folks if they want to come knock on doors that aren't from, from his district to come on out. I, I think there's a, a lot of opportunity to get involved. Call a campaign office in a, in a district that you want to help out. Um, you can also contribute money. I mean, obviously, that's probably one of the best ways. Um, put your money where your mouth is to help out campaigns and swing states. Um, you know, fundraising is critical to successful campaigns, and some of these races are, are costing way more than they have in the past. What do you think, James? Yeah, I know. I would agree. I think that, you know, take advantage of living in the digital world, and you can do online donations. Obviously, some of the big presidential campaigns, grassroots campaigns over the last couple of years, you know, have relied on those five, ten, twenty dollar donations online, those are certainly huge. Um, you know, if you're on social media, this is actually one place you can help promote, you know, getting out the vote for whatever candidate or issue that you that you support. Um, obviously reaching out to those campaigns directly, whether it be filling out probably some sort of form online or calling their offices or something and maybe you can get some help or as as you said, you can even if it's close enough to travel, you could even travel. If you're in you know, D.C., you can get to Maryland or Virginia, or Virginia pretty quick, right. or Pennsylvania, or if you're in Massachusetts, you can get to New Hampshire or any Massachusetts race, or getting out the vote is obviously critical and important, and we keep we can't say enough that only, you know, 50% and a few extra actually vote, so um, the more the better, and, and it does make a difference. I mean, how many times are we going to say this? these elections are so close and, you know, coming down to a few, um, only a few votes that uh, that do that do make a difference, so... There is a lot that can be done. And like you said, you know, social media, talk to your friends, talk to your family, make sure they're registered, make sure that they are going out to vote. I mean, I heard a lot of people because they were so disgruntled, um, the presidential, some people just didn't vote. And obviously, mm-hmm. that does really make an impact in some states and how those votes are counted. So, you know, start close to home and just make sure your friends and your family are, you know, know when Election Day is. Yeah are registered and, you know, give them information on how to get registered if they're not. It's pretty simple. There's a lot of opportunities out there to get registered, to get involved. And I, you know, I think we're going to see that even more over the next 30, 30 or so days. Yeah. And you're right about getting registered. I mean, you can't just show up at a no. poll if you've never registered. You do have to do an advance. So understanding what the rules are, whether it's in your town, city, state, whatever, or, or letting your friends know about mm-hmm. that too. It's certainly, it's certainly important to do that. Or like you said, if there's a candidate in a state that you're really interested in, you have some relatives or friends that live there, you could also get in touch with them. Right. If you really want to go put out a yard sign. A difference. Yard signs. Everybody loves a good yard yeah. sign. Bumper stickers. You absolutely. Know, old school campaigning nowadays. But yeah, absolutely. I've actually, th- I've never actually worked on a campaign in all my years in Washington. And I actually thought about um, getting myself involved. You are due. I, I due am. For a race. And, and dragging yeah. my 13 year old son with me because I thought it would be a good experience. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yep. I yeah. think that's where, you know, you, you get kids involved at a young age and yep. they get passionate about, maybe you know, Larry the Larry Hogan's looking for some volunteers, I think. Maybe you can, uh, you know, head up there. And I think we out. live in Virginia now. Oh, Virginia. So okay, gotcha. Yep. I think we'll probably uh, help uh, someone like Jerry Connolly. Oh, Jerry Connolly. Okay, yes. great. He's my hey. congressman. Yep. Big fan. Great. So. Good. Want to hear from another listener? Let's do it. What's the likelihood that we'll see comprehensive immigration reform if Democrats retake the House? 
it would be highly unlikely off the bat. Obviously, it depends on what the wind looks like. Um, if there's a blue wave, it's very possible that you know Democrats will bring up critical issues relating to immigration reform. But we still have a president in the White House that is a Republican um, and that would have to sign something into law. And obviously, even with a full Republican government right now, that's been challenging. So um, if you've got one House leaning Democrat in the Senate doesn't flip, then I think um, we're back to square one and not able to push something like that through. I also think two years is a very short time before the presidential. So Democrats are going to have to hit the ground running and figure out what are they going to do in those two years to make sure that they keep the momentum for 2020. And again, as we've seen, immigration reform can be very divisive on all sides. Um, So trying to figure out how they would do that would would be very tough. But again, you know, who knows? Anything is possible. I do expect to see an uptick in investigations under a, a Democratic House. I'm hoping that there's also a legislative agenda that does follow that. But what that looks like right now is kind of hard to tell. They're not going to roll back tax reform. There are things that they just can't do in the time that they have until 2020. Uh, unless you have a different thought, James. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I disagree a little bit in the sense that I do think that President Trump um, does like to make a deal. I do think he likes to be shocking. And I could see him, you know, trying to work with Democrats in the House on an immigration bill. Um, you know, obviously, if Democrats win the House, he struggled to get the wall done with Republicans. So it would probably be a done it probably won't happen at all. In it would terms be of the wall. DOA. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so that would be a problem for him. However, there, maybe he would get some sort of funding uh, through for that if there was some sort of negotiation, whatever that might be. I don't even want to speculate. But I do think the problem with immigration reform is the Senate. It's always been the Senate. The House has passed legislation many times. Um, we have no idea who's going to win. So, so we don't know. And so I think the Senate uh, would struggle to rectify or, or conference whatever the Whatever the House passed, I mean, this year, obviously, the Republicans are in the majority, you know, 51 or 52, whatever. And, um, you know, they couldn't get the deal done in February when it looked like they were actually going to have some sort of deal. I didn't necessarily agree with that deal, but they did look like they were trying to get something through. Um, and it, it fell apart at the last minute. And now it's with Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, John Cornyn, you know, all the kind of middle of the road Republicans trying to drag, you know, drag this thing across. And it, and it didn't happen. So I think that would be the... Uh, that would still be the challenge in the Senate, even if Democrats won the Senate by, you know, when they there was a 51 again, same thing. But I still think it's a very big lift. It would be it would be tough to get that through, um, barring, again, some big concessions from the White House where they were willing to accept. Although I will say the DREAM Act, um, if for some reason that was able to get through DACA on its own as a singular bill, which are what a lot of Republicans wanted to do, they just weren't able to. I could see that potentially happening with a Democrat Congress. So more piecemeal. Piecemeal, for sure. Yep. Yep. Agreed. And we have one more listener. Do you think we'll see the impeachment of Donald Trump if Democrats retake both the House and the Senate? Impeachment. Um, I definitely think there's going to be a lot of Democrats who will call for impeachment off the bat. Um, I I can't imagine that... um, that is going to be the majority. Obviously, everyone is trying to figure out what's going to happen with the Mueller investigation. Depending on what that conclusion looks like will depend, I think, on what avenue that Democrats go down. Impeachment takes up a lot of time to legislate. So Democrats do have to have some really quick, big wins 
before the 2020 to show that they are not just to investigate the president, but to truly legislate for the American people. That's what they were elected to do. Um, I I think it's obviously possible, but um, the devil's still in the details. And I think everyone is still really waiting to figure out what happens with Mueller. Yeah, no, I I would agree with you. I think the Mueller investigation, you know, is would trigger, you know, a number of events leading up to some sort of impeachment proceeding. So if it comes out that it's nothing there, then that's it. Or if there's something there, then obviously they have to consider it. I also agree with you that if there was some sort of impeachment proceeding, um, that would pretty much grind everything to a halt. And so if Democrats did win the majority in either house or both, and they wanted to have some sort of governing accomplishments like like we've we've talked about before, making government go, making it function, that would be very problematic for them because that would essentially become the core of the 2020 campaign. And let's just make the assumption that Trump is running for re-election. Well, then obviously that's going to give him something to go on because then he can just say, hey, look, I can't get anything done because, you know, these people are uh, – it's a witch hunt, as he would say, you know. But uh, I do uh, think you will see an uptick in investigations. Sure, of course. Um, whether they're independent yeah. through, you know, oversight and government reform or other committees that have been watching. Oh, I would expect each other Other, you yeah. know, smaller issues um, very closely. And obviously without the gavel, Democrats can't hold those investigations. So I do think you will, will see that probably pretty quickly – in the first couple of months of a new Congress. Yeah, I mean, I would expect set the tone. A chairman, Benny Thompson, look into you know child separation. Yep. Look into uh, Hurricane Maria and the mm-hmm. hurricanes from last year. Um, look into, I'm sure he can find some other things to get into, but Several those two come to mind sure. quickly that he would want to probably mm-hmm. uh, investigate mm-hmm. um, cyber issues. And you're right, government reform and the other. Yeah, Elijah Cummings. Will, you know, yep. obviously, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would expect I would expect um, a lot of activity um, come. January 3rd or whatever, that whenever the new Congress gets gaveled in, for sure. But, you know, in general, as a Democrat, I am hopeful that we do have a legislative agenda. I think it's really important that we don't just do a whole bunch of oversight and flag the impeach, fly the impeachment flag, because I do think the American people want to make sure that Democrats can govern and get things done that they have elected them to do. Well, and the, and the thing about impeachment... Um, you know, there has to be a high crime and misdemeanor. So what is that high crime and misdemeanor? And again, Back to that's the Mueller. Part of it. Back yeah. to the Mueller or, or, or whatever <laughs> else is else. out there. But right. that, it can't just be, I don't like this president. His policy is for any president right. who's in office. It has to be something that's that's credible. And I think that goes back to process and institutions and, and how we look at these things and, um, you know, kind of what the, what the facts are. Well, thanks to everyone for your questions and for listening to Homeland Homeroom. And we really want to thank our producer, Emmajean Weinstein. Emmajean is unfortunately uh, leaving the Homeland Homeroom to go on to other things, but we really appreciate everything she's done to get the Homeland Homeroom off the ground, to get it where it is today. We feel like we've made a lot of progress um, on the Homeland Homeroom, so we really want to say thank you to her and everything that she's done. Absolutely. Couldn't have done it without you, Emmajean. Make sure to email us at info at homelandhomeroom.com with any questions you have about security, and always leave us a review on iTunes. Homeland Homeroom is produced by 90 West. Our producer, Emma Jean Weinstein, thank you again. We have recorded this show at Monitor Studios in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening.